According to a September 2022 New York Times article, in many Hasidic communities, failing private schools flush with public money have resisted oversight and accountability. The New York Times reported that in 2019, one of these schools agreed to give state standardized tests in reading and math to more than 1,000 students. Every one of them failed. Despite laws that define minimum standards for education, such ultra-Orthodox schools have systematically failed to provide basic education to generations of children, trapping many of them in a cycle of joblessness and dependency. Yet there are those who are working to confront this issue. In this episode, we'll hear from Beatrice Weber, Executive Director of Young Advocates for Fair Education. Herself raised in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, Beatrice wed through an arranged marriage before graduating high school. Despite harsh opposition from the community and her family, she left her marriage in 2014 and currently lives in Brooklyn with the two youngest of her 10 children. As part of her journey, she recognized that education would give her independence and saw how the system she grew up in was now failing her own children. You'll hear her story of determination to fight for the basic educational standards all Hasidic children deserve, the emotional agony of having to leave her community and find a way to survive on her own. But that journey provides lessons for anyone confronting the fear of significant life change. Beatrice holds an MBA and an undergraduate degree in psychology and speaks and writes extensively about women's empowerment and education issues in the ultra-Orthodox community. Beatrice, welcome to our podcast series. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm Beatrice Weber and so grateful to the New York Institute of Technology for having me on today. Thank you. Well, we're so happy that you agreed to be on our podcast. Before we get too far into many questions, perhaps you can give us a little bit of your background and talk about your journey. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that question. So first of all, I think it's important to know that I grew up in the Hasidic community. I actually grew up in Canada um, as part of uh, this community. So the Hasidic community, to describe it to some of the listeners who may not be aware, is a sect of the Jewish Orthodox community. The Orthodox community is a very observant, traditional, conservative part of Judaism. And within that, you have the Hasidic sect, which really practices a lot in the manner of Eastern Europe. And there's very specific rules and expectations. There's a very specific dress code that men dress, that you may have seen men dress, specific kind of hats and dark clothing, women have a lot of modesty rules from a very young age, from the age of three. You know, from the age of three, we went to separate schools, right? Separate for girls, separate for boys, very different educational track. You know, as a girl, we got a fairly well-balanced education where some of it was Judaic, like the morning was, you know, all Judaic studies and the in the afternoon of English. The boys, in contrast, would receive a lot less of the academic studies. So most of their day was devoted to Judaic studies. The women were expected to really take care of the home and take care of everything in the house. Sex, the one I come, many of the men stay learning for always. The women have complete responsibility for the care of the children. So really, you know, you're living in two separate worlds when you're a girl in the community and a boy in the community. And, you know, I finished school when I was 16 because my parents moved away from Canada up to Rockland County to Muncie, which is a, a pretty significant enclave of the Hasidic community. And then I went to a you know religious seminary. Soon thereafter, I came back home and I got married at 18 in an arranged marriage. And then, you know, getting married with the expectation that you're going to have a large family. That is kind of the, the unspoken rule. A lot of that 
comes from like we need to build up our world, right? It's still like my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Everybody who I knew, their grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And it was a lot of the message of like we need to rebuild. And the way to rebuild is we're going to have, you know, these large families and everybody, all my siblings, I'm one of eight, my ex-husband is one of nine very typically, and you start young, right? Beatrice, we could describe the community you lived in as ultra-Orthodox, right? Because, uh, you know, as, as we talk about some of these communities, and we'll get into it a little deeper, but there are several, especially immigrant cultures within the United States, where arranged marriages are sort of an accepted practice. So it's not just the, the ultra-Orthodox community that you've come from. There's, there's others. And to some extent, you know, and, we'll, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, what you're working on today to to sort of put some balance in the equation to help young people growing up in these communities. But let's start by talking about uh, the fact that this is an ultra-Orthodox community within the Jewish religion. Yes, correct. So, you know, when you talk about, like, Judaism, and I like to look at statistics because I think that's so important, you know, so less than 10% of Jewish people are Orthodox. So most Jewish people would, will be secular or, you know, reform, conservative, which means they practice some of the rituals and practices, but then you have, you know, the under 10% that are orthodox. You know, and amongst those, there's a small percentage, I believe it's about 30% of those that are orthodox that we would say they're ultra-orthodox. And that's where I come from. And within the ultra-orthodox, which has somewhat been a controversial term, so I will use the word Haredi, Okay, the Haredi community, uh, which is synonymous with ultra-Orthodox, but somewhat somewhat less controversial, because who's to say who's ultra, right? It can have a negative connotation, but sure. the Haredi um, is definitely used in Israel a lot and is starting to be accepted here in the United States as well. There's a lot of separation, a lot of, you know, we can trust our own, but that's it. We, your entire life is really inside that little bubble, inside that little circle. For the most part, if a child or an adult chooses not to live that lifestyle anymore, they're just not there. You're not part of the community anymore. You're very clearly either ostracized overtly or covertly. You're just, you won't, you're not part of it anymore, right? You're in or you're out. Got it. There's very much that. So members of that community are sort of indoctrinated into being separated from the rest of society, and that's often accomplished by instilling suspicion and fear of others, right? Yeah, and it really, at least in my case, and in many other people's cases, has been handed down through, you know, the Holocaust. Other mm-hmm. communities have, have that type of trauma as well, where there's a strong distrust. So definitely, when you look at the Hasidic communities in Brooklyn, and even though I was not raised in Brooklyn, my mother was, so you have a lot of that, where really the messaging of, like, the Holocaust comes down, that, like, everybody's out to hurt you. But the idea that you know, a woman could have a voice or can think thoughts that are different than the group is just so threatening. So, yes, there's definitely indoctrination. You know, one of the big problems is that there are separate schools, as I mentioned earlier, but they're really privately run. So there are a, a huge network in New York, but in other places as well, of schools privately run by the community. And in some ways, they're like charitable institutions, right? They're nonprofits. Mm-hmm. People donate money to them. And also, you know, they take advantage of their status as a private school in New York and receive a lot of benefits, a lot of financial benefits from the city, state, and federal government. 
the biggest issue is, and the issue that the organization that I'm currently the executive director of, is that they barely teach the children. So that especially the boys. The boys will have very long school days. I have a son that's 10. His school day starts before 9 and ends at 545. But in fact, his academic learning is for less than an hour and a half a day. I guess the primary focus of these schools then it sounds like it's mostly religious education with not a lot of emphasis on secular studies, English, reading, mathematics. It's primarily religious studies? Correct. Ah, okay. Correct, yes. So, you know, the religious studies go until like 4.30, you know, and then at 4.30, they'll have an hour of academic studies. And those academic studies for the boys, again, now I'm speaking about the boys now, end by the time they're 13. So what you have is, you know, generations of boys and young men who end up with maybe a third grade literacy level. Okay, but they both go to a yeshiva, a religious school, correct? So one of them does not. One, okay. of, the, one of them is a little older, and she is in a public school. Okay. But my younger son is in a Hasidic yeshiva. So I want to clarify that there are some yeshivas that I know of, personally, in New York City that provide a stellar education, mm-hmm. an excellent education, And then there are many, most of them associated with the Hasidic community that are doing this, where they'll have a full day of Judaic studies and then have, you know, an hour at the end of the day where they have, and again, I I will put academic studies in quotes because the teachers who are teaching them oftentimes, you know, don't have more than a third or fourth grade education themselves. So, and that's really been the cause that you've really focused on through the nonprofit. And I also understand that, I think it was in 2019, you actually brought a lawsuit against, was it one of the schools regarding the education? Yes. So, you know, I I went to college in 2007, you know, I was in my mid-30s, you know, got my, you know, undergraduate, ended up getting an MBA, you know, online because I had to be home. By then I was working full-time and, you know, left my marriage in 2014. I had, you know, built myself up through my education, you know, became, you know, had director level positions at an organization, two different ones. And then 2019, my son was still in the Hasidic yeshiva and I had left my marriage five years prior. And it was just so frustrating for me to see that. I saw what had happened with my older son. You know, some of my older sons are scholars, so they study Judaic texts and they have been very well prepared for that. Right. But, you know, my sons that wanted to go out and work really struggled with getting a job, like they don't have high school diplomas. So in 2019, I had tried to send my son to a different yeshiva that would provide him with more of an academic education. But I was stopped because when I had left my marriage, I had signed an agreement to keep my children in Hasidic schools. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd be able to get away with sending him to like another Hasidic school, but it wasn't considered, you know, good enough. So I was stopped by doing that by a family court judge So I had been following the founder of an organization called Yafed and understood, like really for the very first time, that this was actually illegal, that all children in New York State, no matter which school they go to, need to get an education, right? This is a hundred-year-old law that applies to all schools and all students. So then I, again, in conversation with this organization, realized that I would have a case. I have custody over this child. And I am required to send him to school every day, but I know he's not receiving what he's entitled to. It took three years. We only recently, in October, finally got the results of the investigation. 
the city and state dilly-dallied back and forth for two years until we finally got a statement from the chancellor saying that it's not under her jurisdiction, which is ridiculous because mm. who is it if not theirs? But we ended up taking it to a, you know, the Supreme Court of New York who ruled that the city and state must complete the investigation. Got it. So Yafit, the young, yeah. Yafit is the Young Advocates for Fair Education, and it's an organization that Correct. you're actually yeah. the executive director of now. Yes. So two months ago, I was appointed executive director of this organization. In 2015, Yafed, as an organization, filed on behalf of 39 yeshivas, and that investigation is still not complete. In 2019, they released preliminary results, but the final investigation is still not complete. When they released the preliminary results in 2019, it was after the Department of Investigation had stated that there was some, in quotes, horse trading going on between the mayor's office and Department of Education to delay the release of the report. So there is a lot of political desire to leave things the way they are. The Hasidic community has gotten very large, has a lot of political power. So it's an organization such as Yafed is absolutely vital to ensure that change does happen. Now, let's talk about your personal journey. So we sort of started out talking about that you were married at a very young age, you were raising a family, you had many children, and at some point in your life you started to think that, you know, something needs to change. Could you talk us through that a bit? Yeah, so, uh, you know, to be honest, it was, you know, quite of an emotional crisis for me. At that point, I had eight children. We had moved back. We were living in the United States already. You know, I had a miscarriage. I got depressed, and I got terrified. And I was very, you know, those first few years, which were quite quite a lot of them, over a decade, you know, I had just done what I was told to do, was the right thing, followed along. Uh, every now and then I would get upset about different things, but I would just really shut myself down and continue doing what I was told to do. Be a good, you know, be a good housekeeper, be a good mother, be a good wife. But at that point, I finally reached out for help, which was huge. This was back in 2005. It's a little different now in the community, but at that point, you know, my parents' idea of me going for therapy was absolutely horrifying. My ex actually forbade me to go. And for the very first time, you know, I said, I deserve this. Like, I need this help. I'm really worried about what will happen if I don't get the help. And in that process of starting to talk about my life and, you know, what do I like? What do I want? What do I desire? You know, going to college getting an education really came up as one of the very first things. You know, I was in my mid-30s, hadn't graduated high school, so it was a scary move. But I did it, and it changed my life. You know, it really changed my life. You know, I tried very hard to see what I could do to stay in the marriage. I know, you know, there were rabbis who very much wanted me to stay. I tried to make it work for, you know, quite a number of years. But ultimately, in 2014, I left. By then, I had started an MBA, so I got my, you know, undergraduate degree in psychology. So I, you know, went back to the nonprofit that I had started working at earlier and started working there full time. I was director of operations, and then in the evenings, started doing, you know, an, an online MBA program, which really it was incredible. That's incredible. It's so wonderful, you know, that colleges now provide different type of learning options. You know, so I'd work all day and then come home and then spend, you know, till 12 midnight doing my homework. So by the time I left my marriage, you know, I had, I was in the middle of my MBA, I had an director level job and that gave me the confidence to leave. I left with my four youngest and I left, 
you know, I ended up needing to leave in the middle of the night. You know, my ex had been threatening me that if I do leave him, I won't see any of the children again. And I was scared. You know, I knew my family did not want me to leave my marriage, but I did not expect to get the pushback I did. It was about as awful as it gets. You know, instead of having my family support me, they really very publicly closed me. Gratefully, I did remain with custody of the younger children. But meanwhile, as all this was, was going along, I was still finishing my MBA, you know, doing that. I later got a PMP, a project management professional as well, which, you know, helped me towards my career and was really, you know, doing pretty well, you know, professionally. And that's so important throughout all of this because there's one thing, leaving a marriage with young children, but then how do you support yourself? So you really saw the value of education. You know, there's so much talk today oh. about taking, you know, that people just don't see the value of an advanced education anymore. But the reality is, and I see it, there's a difference between looking at things as the value of education versus the cost of education. And so what happens in our society, I think we need to balance that because, yeah, I agree with a lot of people that the cost may be high, but certainly the value is there. I want your thoughts on that. You know, that's a very good question and very interesting. So when I, you know, did my undergraduate degree, I was eligible for all the things, right? So it didn't cost me anything. But when it came to do my master's, I had to put a lot of thought into it, right? Mm -hmm. We were just getting by. There was no extra money available for me to go to college. And I really had to think about how was I going to do this? And for me, the value of an education was, you know, immeasurable. I ended up, I'll never forget those spreadsheets of like Mm -hmm. really making a lot of phone calls and understanding. At some point I had decided to do an MBA because I thought it would be practical because I had been working in administrative roles in nonprofits. So I figured, you know what, administrative role, let me do an MBA, that will probably help me. And I think it was a wise decision, even though uh, if I was younger and had more options in my life, I may have not chosen that. But for at that point in my life, that was the best thing and really you know, helped me for many years until today. For me, and hearing you, it's inspiring. And the fact that you now work for an advocacy group that is pushing for higher education standards at some of these religious schools, it sort of shows me that you took this education and you're giving back to your community. And people from the outside probably couldn't really understand what you went through in order to get those degrees. And now you're coming back and saying, wait, I see that that we need to do more for our young people. And you're sort of giving back in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's really special for me to be in this role on a personal level, like going for an education, but then with my son really fighting to make change for him, which will Mm. hopefully bring change to all children. It feels just so synergistic and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to kind of combine both what's personally so important to me, as well as, you know, my professional experience working in nonprofits to be able to do this. Beatrice, based on your experience, this is where I like it. And I think there are many of our listeners who could really understand what you went through. But so let me phrase the question for you. Based on your experience, if you had to give advice, what are some of the keys to overcoming the fear and taking risks of what you had to do in order to achieve what you wanted to achieve? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's two things. It's number one, having that longer term goal in mind all the time, kind of that vision, right? Like, where do I want to be? Where do I see myself? Mm -hmm. While at the same time, really focusing like one day at a time 
what do I need to do today? What do I need to do today to move this forward? Got it. I think holding both of those really allows us to kind of get past those fears. And you know what I have found? Whichever stage I've been in, right? Whether it was that first job, I'll never forget that first part-time. It was a program coordinator job that I applied for. Uh, it was a $16 an hour job back in 2008 at a nonprofit. And I will never forget how terrified I was, right? Because it was my first time applying for a real job forever, forever, right? Like I had never, I'd been like an assistant teacher back, you know, for the few months before I got married. I was terrified, terrified of that interview. You know, and now I get interviewed by the New York Times. Right. Interviewed here. <laughs> you know, I have these like huge moments and I'm still scared. I think fear is one of those things that just accompany us as we move ahead and as we make changes and as we do big things for ourselves. So I always think fear should never be ignored. It's an important kind of guardrail or a reminder to us that we're trying something new and different. But at the same time, it should never be, you know, the force that guides us or that moves us forward. Uh, There's an author, Elizabeth Gilbert, and, you know, she's always said, I give fear a seat at the table, but I never allow it to drive the car. And for anybody who's interested in learning more, I have some great resources on my website, which is BeatriceWeber.com. I have a quiz that really identifies, you know, which type of warrior woman you are, because that is so much my belief. We have it all inside of us. and just about hacking into it. I also have a PDF that talks about perfectionism. Perfectionism is often, you know, one of the things that block us from achieving our goals when we get stuck in doing everything perfectly. And that so often is a result of fear. You know, we let the fear overcome and then we step into a space where we think everything has to be perfect. I also have the first chapter of my book if anybody is interested in looking at that too. So that's a great resource for people interested in this. And I'd love for your listeners to go onto the Yafed website. So Yafed, Y-F-F-E-D dot org, and look at some of the work we've been doing and continue to do. We've had big victories and big wins in both the court system as well as, you know, political system, as well as in the press. We were, you know, in the Times recently. So there's a lot of very positive developments that have happened in the effort to improve education for Hasidic young men. We look forward to doing more, and, you know, we are grateful for everybody who supports us in this work. And there's a lot of work still to be done to make sure that every child gets the education they deserve. Got it. So that's interesting. And thank you for that quote. We're talking a lot about women and innovators and what are the roadblocks to success. Someone like you, as an example, has an inspiring story that you didn't let things hold you back, despite the fact that the community was sort of set against you of doing this. And yet you thought, no, I've got to do this for myself. I've got to move forward. And as you said, you know, have a clear vision, but work on it every single day. What do I need to do today to move forward? And I think that's wonderful advice. Question for you. What one word describes who you are? Wow, I think I'm going to really think about this. Oh, my goodness, one word. Well, I would say courageous. I would use the word courageous, even though it's hard to. Yeah, I would say courageous. I don't think you should shy away from using that word. You know, your story, and again, I asked you about, you know, overcoming fear and taking risks. And for you, you had so much to lose, and yet you fought on. And that's what courage is all about, right? 
Beatrice, I can't thank you enough. This has this been wonderful, and I think our listeners get a lot out of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you very much for having me. Yes, thank you. Anyone who struggles with fear and anxiety about making a critical life-altering change can learn from Beatrice's story. Although confronted with the prospect of being ostracized by her family and community, Beatrice wanted to change her life and create a new path for her children. As she described, fear is one of the things that accompany us as we move ahead, make changes, and do big things for ourselves. Fear should not be ignored, nor should we allow it to take over and deter us from reaching our goals. She paraphrased the author, Elizabeth Gilbert, who said, I give fear a seat at the table, but I never allow it to drive the car. Following along that vein, in the book Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear, Gilbert writes, So this, I believe, is the central question upon which all creative living hinges. Do you have the courage to bring forth the treasures that are hidden within you? Now, I guess that's the question anyone, especially innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders must at some point ask themselves. We witness the emergence of courage in Beatrice as she confronts those forces attempting to limit her potential and those of her children. Her advice is to have a clear vision and work on it every single day. Remember, in time, even small steps will aggregate to profound change. We thank Beatrice for sharing her experience and valuable insights. This podcast is executive produced by John Robecki, and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Interim Dean of the School of Management and Executive Producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohen. Our Marketing and Social Media Strategist is Petra Shantaraga. And our Audio Editor and Mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Professor Ellie Schwartz and Victoria Greco for all their support. Until next time.